From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Brian Cox. He plays media tycoon Logan Roy on HBO Succession. There's no question about it. He's a very, very flawed individual. But at the same time, he's a self-made man and he has all the insecurities of a self-made man. He's had to reinvent himself. That's a tough thing. And that's kind of what I admire about Logan. I don't like the way he's reinvented himself, but I do understand, you know, because I've had to do it myself as well, you know, dealing with this business. And I have not sympathy, but I do have empathy for, for Logan's position. Brian discusses how much he knows about the next season scripts. He also shares some of those classic Logan Roy jabs. I recorded this conversation with Brian last month. Let's get started. Brian, thanks so much for joining. You're welcome. I'm a little bit fearful even having this conversation with you because I feel like you could fire me at any moment. Not at the moment, no. (laughs) So far, so good. I'm not in an unforgiving vein at the moment. (laughs) So how are you doing? Uh, Okay. I mean, I'm dying to get back to work because at least I can get to my trailer and have a break. This lockdown, I mean, the world and his wife have gone mad. I'm doing all kinds of things all over the world. I've just done a Zoom picture. I've done several poetry readings. I've done lots of Zoom things like this. I mean, I've never been busier. I'm dying to get back to work just so this can all stop. Zoom takes a lot out of you. Oh, my God. And then today I had to download some a toolbox and the activation key didn't work. And that just, uh, I'm not a technical person by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm, I'm feeling a little under siege. <laughs> I understand. Have you been watching any TV during this time, catching up on anything? Well, I watched Unorthodox, which was excellent. But there's this wonderful series... It's a French piece. It's called A a French Village. It's a fantastic series. It's incredibly well done. So I've been watching that. So no Tiger King for Brian? Oh, absolutely not. No, 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 no. No Tiger King. And that that sort of thing I completely abhor. I don't like what they do to animals, but I also don't like the fact that it's sensationalized in some kind of way, which kind of... Like a tacit thing that's saying, well, it's okay, isn't it? Because it's entertaining, but it isn't okay and it shouldn't be done. And I think those guys are nuts. <laughs> that's my view. <laughs> I agree with that. Well, like you said, I mean, I think the question on everyone's mind, on top of when is production going to resume for Hollywood, is when are we getting succession back? And I know everything's to be determined, but have you read any scripts? No, but I kind of know what's going to happen for the first time. I I mean, usually when we did the show, I was, well, not just me, the cast were the last to know because the scripts would arrive, say we'd have a reading on lunchtime on a Wednesday, and then we'd be filming that Monday. You know, that was it. There was this, you know, that episode. But it happened to me just before lockdown. I was in England. I was directing a play with my wife. And I went to see Jesse, and uh, Jesse said, shall I tell you about next season? And I went hang on, I'm not supposed to know about that. What are you talking about? No, I'm not sure. It's putting an awful burden on me. He said, no, it's okay. I mean, you know. So he did tell me, 
and it's fantastic and I can't tell anybody hopefully when we get it done when we get it made it's a great season it's a really great season full of amazing twists and curves and all kinds of stuff so I'm I'm really looking forward to it you know when we get it done but of course you know, it's a toss-up what's happening at the moment we, with this climate. You know, it's, uh, we don't know. I was going to say, is it is it harder to know with this much sort of lead time? Like, are you overthinking about what's to come? Are you like... No, I'm not. I mean, I'm really not. I mean, I've got, you know, there's... I, I mean, I'm so busy with doing so much other stuff. You know, I did a podcast with David Tennant the other day. You know, it's it's been really... It's been very demanding. And luckily enough, I have this cabin... Uh, which is my house, main house is down there. Uh, and we, we've got about eight acres here and it's all woods. It's all trees and it's gorgeous at the moment. Absolutely gorgeous. But I come up here and I do some voiceovers. I've got a little voiceover studio about a series of blankets, which I have around the corner. And, and, but most of the stuff I do from here. So it's like going to work. I get up. I, I've injured my leg. I tore my meniscus in my knee and that, that caused me a bit of consternation because okay. I had to go to the hospital to have it dealt with. And because I'm diabetic, I'm in the high risk area. So I have to be very careful about going out. And my wife is very strict. I have to wash my hands all the time. I feel like a four-year-old child. Wash your hands. Have you washed your hands? Wash your hands. It's worth it right now. It's a scary time. No, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. But it's kind of funny. (laughs) So are you nervous about when things do start up? I mean, being back on a set and sort of being in close quarters with people? No, I'm not really. I, I, I'm not nervous about that. I'm a theatre animal. That's My roots are in the theatre, and what's happening to the theatre is just awful. I mean, there isn't the kind of hue and cry that there is in the UK, because in the UK it's one of our biggest industries, and they're having real, real problems. A lot of theatres are going into liquidation, and there's a big move to try and stop it. So uh, the work is, is tremendously good, but the institutions need protecting. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about Succession. I mean, Logan Roy is a very complicated character, to say the least. And, you know, with two seasons under your belt and about to start the third, what has it been like sort of getting to know him? Like, have you figured out who hurt him, what set him on this path? I mean, we've gotten a glimpse of it. We've seen the scars on his back, things like that. It's an interesting conundrum. I mean, he is a bit of a conundrum. I, I, I think it's very important from the audience's point of view that not too much is given away. Talk about not too much was given away. I didn't know. They didn't tell me until the ninth episode of season one that I was no longer born in Quebec, Canada. Because I've been playing this kind of North US, South Canadian accent I've been kind of doing. And then Blow me on the the ninth episode. Peter Friedman comes along and he says, oh, uh, by the way, they've changed your birthplace. And I said, what do you mean they've changed my birthplace? He said, yeah, you're not born in um, Quebec. I said, so where am I born? He said, oh, I can't remember. He said, I don't know. Hang on. And he looked at his device. He said, oh, yeah, here we are. Somewhere called Dundee, Scotland. And I'm going, but that's where I was born. So that was a surprise, you know. And then, of course, we saw... What happened in episode eight of the second series when I went back to Dundee and and it was bizarre because there I was, a local boy going back, playing this guy who had also left quite early. It was very strange. So the the part has slightly grown in a way because he's 
He's self-made. And hello, what's that? It's a helicopter. I apologize. I thought it was my stomach grumbling. <laughs> I thought, hmm, that's embarrassing. Anyway, <laughs> so we didn't know. I didn't know. And of course, the mystery of it is what's really intriguing. I remember, I, you know, years ago, I played Hannibal Lecter, the original Hannibal Lecter. Tony Hopkins was wonderful. He played a fantastic role, he did. And this is where Jesse's very clever. He sort of gave away too much. So there was no mystery. Hannibal lost his mystery. The thing about Logan is there is an element about him which is mysterious, and that has to be maintained, really, who he is. I mean, I did say to Jesse, I said, does he love his children? He said, well, yeah, very much so. I said, well, he doesn't behave as if he does. But then I realized that that's who he is. He holds things very close to himself, and he doesn't give anything away. And that's that's the great strength of the role, too. Well, it's interesting you mentioned, like, does he love his children? Because I thought we might see, like, a glimpse of a softer side in the way he interacts with his grandchildren. But even there, it's a very... A strict relationship, like he snaps at the grandchildren. Yeah. In fairness to him, he was quite ill at that point with the grandchildren. He was getting, I mean, it was just before he had his stroke and there was a lot of stress. I mean, he's not really a family man, you know, and also his own family is clearly, from what we discover, has clearly been dysfunctional. There's the mystery of his sister, there's there's Elspeth, his mother, who we don't know too much about. And then there's the polar opposite of him, Jimmy Cromwell's part, who's all about ecological kind of uh, responsibility. And, of course, Logan doesn't have any truck with any of that. You know, the brother's, from my point of view, the brother's right. Uh, but Logan hasn't gone down that any there because so much stuff that we, we are going to get, but over a while, over a period... Well, what's interesting, too, is, I mean, Logan is someone whose presence dominates a scene even when he's not in it. Like, we see how his being sort of affects the people around him, like the psychological wounds of his adult children. How does that inform how you play him, knowing what they feel when he's not around? Well, I think the thing about his children and, and, and Logan, as I say, he does love his children, and he's constantly putting them in situations. I mean, they're very lucky. You know, they're very lucky. They're in very good situations in which to shine. And Kendall has not particularly shined particularly well with his drug addiction. And you could always say it's back to his childhood. It's, you know, things that didn't happen between the English mother and, and Logan, the sort of dysfunction of that relationship and is spread onto his children. But at the same time, Logan, he expresses affection for his children, and he's very honest with them. He doesn't pretend. He just says, you've got to step up to the plate. And if you don't step up to the plate, there's nothing I can do, you know. You can lead the horse to water, but you can't make the bloody thing drink. And I think there's that element about his kids. And, of course, there are, there is the sort of, with the eldest uh, son, Connor, he's kind of drifted into kind of eccentricity, which is kind of rather sweet, but it's a way of dealing with his background. And then there's Kendall, who seems to be in a permanent state of some kind of pain or other. And then there's the wackiness of uh, Roman, 
And Roman's really coming of age. I mean, suddenly he's showing much more skills than than hitherto has been noticed. It'll be an interesting development to see how Roman does develop. And then, of course, the Shiv. And Shiv is his favorite. But then again, Shiv is married to this not particularly reliable individual, ambitious, you know, and he can see through that. And also she can't keep her mouth shut. She always talks herself, you know, when the famous Pierce dinner and they are discussing her taking over and then she blows it and he goes, the sense of timing is not good. So there's a lot of stuff, you not not facing up to their own fiscal and familial responsibilities. I think that's that's the interesting thing about the piece. I mean, Logan is curiously, there's no question about it, he's a very, very flawed individual. But at the same time, he's a self-made man, and he has all the insecurities of a self-made man, you know, because he's got nothing that he can rely on that's given him some kind of grounding. He's had to reinvent himself. And that's tough. And that's kind of what I admire about Logan. I don't like the way he's reinvented himself, but I do understand, you know, because I've had to do it myself as well, you know, the, dealing with this business, you have to meet the challenges of this business. And it's very challenging. And, and it's a lot of people have fallen by the wayside over the years. And to keep going is tough. You know, I can see that in terms of how you react, how you are within a situation. And I have not sympathy, but I do have empathy for, for Logan's position. Brian, you bring up a, an interesting point that I wanted to make, which is that people just love the way Logan speaks. Like, the fuck off has really become a catchphrase of his. And I'm just curious, are you much of a cursor in real life? I have my moments. <laughs> yes, I can curse. My children curse all the time. And I say, why are you speaking like that? And they say, because you do. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, God, yes, I'm such a bad influence. <laughs> What's your go-to phrase? Oh, fuck off. <laughs> you know, I mean, I do so many variations on that. You know, that's why it's one. I mean, I've had these incidents, you know, I, this incredible incident where I, I went to this Me Too thing with Ronan Farrow and there were all these women there and it was a very serious afternoon and it was a good afternoon. It was organized by Rosanna Arquette, who I was a friend and who I worked with as a colleague. So I went along and at the end of the meeting, it was very serious and he was made some excellent points. The meeting broke up and then suddenly I was surrounded by all these women, you know, who were going and not all of them, not all of them, one or two maybe said, you know, could I video you telling me to fuck off? And I thought, isn't that a little bit off at a Me Too meeting that I tell you to... But I've had kids. So when I was doing the play on Broadway, I was doing this great society playing Lyndon Johnson. I would come off stage and there'd be young couples waiting outside with their boyfriend and, and they'd hold up their camera and say, can you tell us to fuck off? And of course, I, with great pleasure, would say, well, fuck off! <laughs> It probably really just lends itself to like when you get those fan encounters and you're not in the mood, you can just pretend you're in character. And the idea that they can go, oh, he said it to us, isn't that exciting? You know? <laughs> then you realize it has no value. <laughs> I was curious, like, I mean, we've been asking our various guests this question, and I want to know what you think 
how you think Logan would handle the situation we're in today? He'd be fine with it. He'd be absolutely fine. It would give him an excuse to stop and reconnoitre. And I think Logan would have some little hidey hole that he gets himself away to. And he would be there. And of course, he wouldn't stop because, I mean, he'd get frustrated because he wouldn't know how to do Zooming or any of that kind of thing. So he'd probably get very angry about all of that. But then he's got Colin who would come in and help him and clean things up. So he's got the stuff, except, you know, it depends who he's sequestered with, depends who he's secluded with. You know, if he's with uh, his wife, Marsha, uh, it's a, it'll be a different thing. But it's, it's hard to say where he would be or where he would be caught, you know, if he was in one of his trips. Or on his boat, you know, he would. It's problematic. It's problematic where he would be. But I, I don't think he'd have a problem coping. He'd actually be probably grateful for the respite. <laughs> Do you think he'd wear a mask? Yes, I think if he has to go into a public, just in terms of his own health, he has had a stroke, so therefore he has to be careful about his own health. And he is actually older than me. I'm, I'm seventy-four. He's probably 81 or even coming up to being 82 now. So he's, he's in a very vulnerable position. I just want to hear him say, fuck off, Corona. That's my dream. Can you just indulge me, please? Oh, Corona, Corona. Just fuck the fuck off. <laughs> I love it. It's 1945. Hitler is defeated. America is looking to outsmart a new enemy, the Soviet Union. To advance in rocketry, aviation, and chemical weapons, America recruits scientists and engineers who fueled the war machine of another nation, Nazi Germany. Operation Paperclip brought the Third Reich's most ingenious and often villainous men to the United States. The War Department thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will pick them up and use them against us. His file said he was 100% Nazi, a dangerous type. Somehow, the file was changed and he came in. I'm Michael Ian Black. Join me and historian Monique Laney on the series Paperclip, funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Time Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The second season ended with Kendall, who's played by Jeremy Strong, not taking the fall for misdeeds by the company, instead turning on Logan in that press conference. And the closing shot is that smirk of pride from Logan, seeing that his son was finally playing the game. Were you surprised by how much attention that smirk got? It's amazing. The, the Mona Lisa, has, it's only equivalent to the Mona Lisa smile, the smile, Logan's smile. I mean, it's, it made total sense to me. He's so conniving and contriving, Logan. He puts his son in this difficult position when he said, you know, I don't know if you're a leader. I don't know if you've got it in for you, but you're not a killer. You've got that. And he's throwing all this bait out, thinking, is he going to take it? 
Is he going to take it or is he just going to be a dickhead and not take it? And of course, he's not a dickhead and he takes it. And of course, there is this same thing. Oh, well, it's not good. He's, he's taken it. So now we're on to a new chapter. Yeah. Good, good, good. You know, so it was very sort of legitimate, the smile, because in a way he's saying, finally, the kid's growing up. Finally, he's getting out of his diapers. Maybe he will uh, begin, but we shall see. <laughs> why do you think we like or why are we fascinated by these horrible characters so much? And what does it say about us that we are? Well, I think it's summed up by, you know, the inappropriate, can you tell me to fuck off at a Me Too meeting? You know, I mean, people don't know sometimes whether they're on their behind or their elbow. You know, and human beings are very much caught in that. You know, they really are. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. They can't let go of certain idiocies. <laughs> the proof is in the the idiot that we got for president and how he got voted. And also the idiot they've got for prime minister in the UK. I mean, it's very, very prevalent of the time that uh, these outrageous, ridiculous individuals who are far more ridiculous than Logan Roy, have got seats of power. And I, I think that that's what's so extraordinary about the time and extraordinary about the show, because the show really has captured that, that captured that dissonance that is in the world at the moment. And this is the other thing. The thing about Logan, and it's the, it's the kind of secret of Logan, is it's a game. It's a game. And therefore, like all games, you take it up and put it down, you take it up and put it down. You don't necessarily attach yourself to the game. I think that Logan has had to learn very early on that life is an elaborate game that you have to play and you play to certain stakes and you win some, you lose some, or you can gain as much as you want. And you, your, your principles can float. That's not me, uh, but I understand that. We're, we're at a stage now where the script is a little dodgy. You know, the, the script of our lives is a little, you know, and it's and it's now coming into focus how dodgy that is, how tricky that is. That's what we're seeing on a daily basis. And we're seeing that the real heroes are not the billionaires, not any of those people, but the carers, the nurses, the delivery workers, the people who are actually keeping everything around the world totally afloat. Well, one of the things the show is known for is bringing a little bit of comedic relief to these moments. And, you know, the Succession soundtrack for season two was recently released. And that means we can all now listen to Jeremy Strong as Kendall rapping L to the OG. And I need you to take me back to that night of filming that scene. <laughs> it was wonderfully ridiculous because I have a complete look of bemusement on my face, which is, you know, and the bemusement is actually very easy to act because it is quite bemusing that he decides to go into this rap. And you think, where's that come from? Well, that, that, that shows us where he is culturally high bound, which is fine, you know, and, uh, and it's so witty. And Nick Brittle, who writes the music, is just a genius, quite frankly. So I, I was bemused by it, as a lot of people were. And people were, I wasn't horrified. I just thought, this is, this is odd. And also, you go, the boy is definitely mad. The boy is definitely, he's, he's, he's missing a shilling or two. Well, I mean, if this series came along 
way earlier in your career, which of the Roy sons would you have wanted to play? Probably Connor, if it came earlier in my career, because I, I think Connor is such a wacko. I mean, I just think he's so wacky and so kind of odd and, and kind of, there's something sort of sweet about Connor as well. You know, he, he's well-meaning, but he's such a dickhead, you know, and not in the nicest possible way. And the fact that he thinks he could run for president, it's just, it's just outrageous. And I think Alan Rock does a, a genius job. I think he's, he's just so good and so dry and so funny. You just get these moments of real desperation where suddenly you know how thin, deep it is for him. Now, I think Connor probably. Good choice. I mean, this role has earned you critical praise and a Golden Globe Award, and you're on people's shortlist to receive an Emmy nomination when they're announced. So what has it been like to receive this kind of mainstream acclaim at this stage in your career? You know, that's the great thing. The Golden Globes, was, it was so delightful to be there. And it's, I mean, I really was delighted. I was actually surprised at how I was delighted. I'm a little suspicious of awards and that kind of stuff. And I have won them in the past. I haven't won, I didn't win anything for many, many years. It was joyous. And it was such a great time, you know, especially with people like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and people like that who were around and, and, and all the Brits, we all got together. So it was a great time, you know. It was, I mean, that was the best side of it, was these dinners or lunches that we had where you, we met our fellow players and performers and directors and that was the best aspect of it you know the awards as an excuse for everybody to get together was a great idea the award is like the cherry on the cake but in a way it's the cake that's nice you know not the cherry the cherry's great you know i'm not knocking it i was delighted and my wife was with me so we both had a very good time which was nice who did you lock eyes with while giving your acceptance speech like al pacino like who did who do you remember like oh my god Al Pacino, very much so. And I remember when I came off, I walked straight into Elton John, who was then praising me for my Churchill. <laughs> he was saying, this is great, but you're Churchill. And then five days later, when we were up for the Critics Awards, uh, I bumped into Al, who I know, I've known him for years, and he said, yeah, it was great, but you're Churchill. <laughs> and so I thought, well, this is good because I'm getting, I'm getting, a, there's a double whammy going on here. So I was, I was rather touched by that. I was rather touched. And then I met people who I hadn't seen, like Brad Pitt, who I'd worked with, and he was, you know, Brad. He's quite a shy man, Brad, but he was very effusive. And then, lo and behold, I mean, the, he's, it was, this young man came up to me and said, i got to work with you. We've got to work together. We really have to work together. And I, I thought, who is this? And then I thought, oh, it's, it's Leonardo DiCaprio. Brian. <laughs> so it's kind of so that aspect of it was was delightful. Leonardo DiCaprio. We have to make this happen. <laughs> I mean, did you have a backup career in your mind at any point if this acting thing didn't work out? No. No, I was determined. You know, it was always what I wanted to do and uh I was blessed. I was very blessed. I had luck on my side and good fortune and people who really looked out for me, you know, when I was young. I mean, I had a, you know, a bit of a tragic, no, not tragic. I had a lot of, you know, I lost my dad and my mum went nuts, you know, so and there was all of that. And she had to, have, she had to have electric shock treatment, which was not good. It was in the fifties. So that was tricky. And I was on my own for quite a long time. I stayed with my sister for a bit. 
But I, I knew what I wanted to do, and I, I had these great teachers. Not My schooling was a disaster. In fact, when I look at my grades, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, but it felt disastrous because it was nothing to do. There was nothing there that I wanted to do. But I had a couple of very good guys. One of them knew a guy who had been at the school, and he had this, he had this general factotum job at the local repertory theater. He said, why don't you go out for the interview? Um, so I did. I went in and got for the interview. And uh, lo and behold, I started, you know, taking money to the bank and washing the stage at night. That was my job. But I never looked back. And then I went backstage and I was the worst stage manager ever. I was completely hopeless. I was just, just ridiculous. Then I went to drama school and it went on from there. The only time I had a bit of a crazy time was I kind of was doing a lot of theater. And uh, I was getting very frustrated by it. And it just drove me nuts. And I thought, I've got to get some television or some film. And I couldn't, I couldn't get anything. So for four months, I went and worked in a gym. I mean, people, you know, when you, when you work behind a desk and people come up, you see more performances that way than you would see in the theater. You know, people coming up and doing their thing, doing their shtick. And then I went back and, and then, of course, the next job I did was theater. And that was, that was, that was the beginning of the turn in my career. Were you much of a TV watcher growing up? Oh, I was at the, we call it the pictures in Scotland. We got in the pictures. I went to the pictures. I would go to the pictures. You know, it was double features. Well, it would go three days, double feature. So you're going at six and you go out at 11. I had a whale of a time. I mean, as a six-year-old, because I used to go and sneak in and watch the movies. And because uh, it got pretty bad one time when later on, uh, I went to see Giant and <laughs> I fell asleep in the cinema. My sister was looking after me. She went crazy. She couldn't find me. You know, the police were out looking for me. And meanwhile, it was four o'clock in the morning and I was fast asleep in the Greens Playhouse in Dundee. And I had to break out of the cinema and I broke out. <laughs> and then the police, I ran down the street. It was four o'clock in the morning and suddenly there was this voice from, you know, the Doctor Who's the TARDIS, which were the old police boxes of this voice saying, where are you going, young man? And it scared the bejesus out of me. I want that to be Logan's origin story. That's amazing. Our last question actually comes from our previous guest, and that's Mandy Moore from This Is Us. And here was her question for you. I am curious who in the cast is most like their character on the show. It's very hard to say. I think it's all, it's all very much performed. You know, they, they are great performances. So there's nobody that's really like anybody. I mean, they are all alike. They're, they have elements of themselves, you know, but on the whole, they're very separate. Well, now I'm going to turn the tables to you because our next guest is Uzo Aduba from Mrs. America. Do you have a question for her? And it does not have to relate to her show. It could just be an actor-to-actor actor question. Okay. How did she find getting work? How difficult was it for her? Okay. Brian, thank you. It was such a pleasure talking to you. You're well, most welcome. That's it for the 18th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimsen, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back next week. We're talking to Uzo Aduba. Not that I didn't think I would ever work with women again. I thought it would be like, I might work with a bunch of women, but we're going to be talking about like dresses. Or I might work with like a bunch of women, but 
there may not be a bunch of women behind the camera. You know what I mean? I thought like this thing will probably never happen again. And then I got the call for this and it was like, oh, this is gonna happen again. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.